Hello there and welcome to episode 61 of Right Where You're Sitting Now. Uh, joining me, I always seem to forget to bring you in early, <laughs> but joining me once again, it's Mark with a C, Satir. How are you doing, sir? Uh, very good, thank you. And uh, what that was a very brief uh, introduction there. I, I usually expect a more long, grandiose... And it's uh, coming, don't worry. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Right, okay, excellent. <laughs> Brace yourself. Now, one thing I wanted to address quickly is on the last episode with Toby Churton, uh, Tobias Churton, we um, we ran a competition, but we didn't actually run it until the very end. And I know some of you sons of bitches out there don't listen to the end of the podcast after the interview ends. So um, we're going to restate it here. We have an extra copy of his book, Alistair Crowley in England, um, sent to us uh, by the wonderful people at Inner Traditions. And... Um, we're going to be giving that away to one lucky listener. Um, now, we've the competition details are on the site at sittingnow.co.uk, but essentially all you have to do is follow us on Instagram and then um, comment with your Instagram name on the, the post on sittingnow.co.uk for the, the episode uh, and answer the question uh, that is posed in the post. You'll see it. There's a big picture of his book and underneath that you could, you, you'll see the question. It's it's not the most taxing of uh, competition questions of all time, but it's more an, you know, an exercise in engaging our audience. But uh, anyway, um, so who are we talking to this week, Mr. Satir? It's uh, Mr. Mark Stavish. And um, we're going to be focusing on his uh, book, which I know it's been very popular so hopefully many people will uh, be familiar with it and if they're not familiar with it they will become more familiar with some of its concepts and ideas and that's uh, egregores the occult entities that watch over human destiny it's a really good book isn't it we both read it uh i think i've read it twice you've read it twice mm, yeah yeah it's um, very interesting um quite a unique concept as well you don't often um you don't often see egregores brought up i mean uh, as i say in the, in the interview um uh the only other time i've really seen it in depthly brought up is in the stephen flowers book uh, the fraternity of saturni um have you come across it before i've come across the concept yeah i mean it's the only it's the only book it's the only book that's invested itself in um shining a, a, a you know a, a focused uh, attention to that idea it's sort of a spotlight on the idea of the egregore and uh yes i mean so you know the word egregore egregory is a, a greek word that originally was a, a an order of angels or angelic you know sort of spiritual beings and angelic beings um familiar from the pages of the book of enoch if uh, some uh, some people might be familiar with that and then there's also like um Solim solomonic grimoire the the swarm book uh, they, they they feature quite quite uh, vividly in that so we are we're, we're focusing on something so we're going to be engaging in some um thinking about magic if, if uh, well let, let, let's um let our very discerning um audience decide if we're guilty of, of magical thinking or thinking about magic but uh i'll, I'll let them decide that and let's roll to that interview now Hello, Mark Stavish. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Um, I was wondering if you could give us a brief biography of yourself, please. Oh, well, thank you very much for the invitation. It's great to be here. Um, I am the founder and director of studies of the Institute for Hermetic Studies. We've been around for about uh, almost 25 years. And uh, we have courses on Teachable, and uh, we have uh, probably 30 or so books in production and publication. There's so many I lose track. And it's about traditional Western esotericism. And um, I've been doing this for quite a while. I uh, have been involved in a variety of esoteric groups and movements, and uh, so have uh, some members of my family, my great uncle in particular, who I used to regularly attend uh, uh, different meetings with uh, for, for quite a while. So um, I, I have a, a wide-ranging uh, and, and deep background in various esoteric topics and, and, more importantly, practices and what those practices do to us, how they affect us, how they change us, how we change ourselves with them, and what the strengths and weaknesses of that can be. 
because it's not all good, or at least not at the time. So uh, that's one of my areas of focus is uh, kind of the pathology of spiritual practice, where things go wrong. As I, as I said years ago at a conference, uh, you know, a funny thing happened on the way to Tifereth. And, uh, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it's easy to get derailed on the journey. So uh, that's me. So I'm always interested in um, people's kind of origin stories, as it were, with, um, you know, what, what drew them to esoteric uh, spirituality. So obviously you had a family connection, but was that what drew you in or? I guess so. I mean, it's hard to say, you know, when you're, when you're reading this stuff at, you know, 12, 13, 14, it, it, it's hard to say, right? Yeah. I mean, um, so with the Institute of Hermetic Studies, I'm kind of interested in that. Could you talk a bit more about like kind of the, cause I, I saw somewhere that you do work with people in prison and all sorts. It's... Well, we don't necessarily work with them. What we have is a prison outreach program where if, uh, uh, incarcerated, uh, men or women write to us asking for, literature, we, we have a set aside amount of money that has been given to us specifically for that purpose. And we'll, we'll send them some of our publications, some of our monographs. Mm. And uh, it's, it's been working out well. I mean, it's interesting when some of your most dedicated practitioners are, uh, you know, incarcerated. Mm. Um, and we have, you know, some other programs too. We've done library donations and inst institutional donations. We've, we've taken care of that. And uh, we do our primary fundraising is uh, through Direct Ask and our annual conference, which is coming up in May of uh, this year. And it is virtual as well. We, we don't like doing it virtually, but if we have to, we will. The show must go on. And <laughs> it will go on indeed. And uh, we have coursework that is open to really anyone. We have uh, at Teachable, teachable.com, the Institute for Hermetic Studies. We have a six-hour a free course to anyone who wants to take it called Unfolding the Rose. And it's an introduction to Western esotericism in general and uh, our approach to the coursework in particular. So is it, is it like a kind of practically um, driven course or is it like, a, you know, is, are there rituals or things involved? Or Well, there's meditations and practices, but we're very, um, we're very practice oriented, very practically oriented. We look at this in terms of theory and practice. So, uh, you know, there's, there's some wonderful literature out there. There's wonderful videos if people want a academic understanding and we supply them. We share links to those with people, you know, regularly in emails because it's important. However, uh, the only thing that's going to help you in your personal life, in your personal experience is your practice. So everyone who is sincere about their journey needs to you know, take stock of their practice and what they expect from it, what they need to do. And, uh, you know, is it delivering as promised? And that kind of is the lead into why I wrote the book Egregores. Uh, yeah, I didn't really mean to. It was just I, I was talking to Jocelyn Godwin one day. We were out having lunch in Binghamton. And I said, oh, I was thinking of writing a monograph on the topic. And he said, well, thank God, because if you don't, I'll have to. And I went home that night and I had notes started and I just started writing it. And it was really very conversational. If you've read the book, I'm sure you have. It's it's just a conversational style and it describes this topic that we heard quite a bit about. We heard the word. It was like name dropping, like an occult version of name dropping. Or, But people often didn't really know what it meant or they had an idea of what it meant. But the broader implications were never fully elaborated upon. So I just said, well, I'll write the book. And it's it's an interesting book because when it was done, as I said, I just sat down and wrote it. I wrote it conversationally. There's no chapters. I mean, it has chapters, but it's not like I, I put them in there. We put those in there after the fact. We said, oh, well, this looks like a good place for a chapter break. And this one does too. Yeah, that one's good. Okay. Um. We thought about making it bigger, more examples, more information. But I said, no, it's like baby bear's porridge. You know, it's just right. Mm. Let's not let's not break it. You know. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a very readable book. I mean, it's a, I mean, it, it sort of goes along. You know, I, I found it very. Um, it seemed to be. Uh, I seemed to read it very rapidly. And one of the things that really struck me about it is there are many spokes to the sort of 
the will, the hub, or the egregore idea as I was going through, you know, the, the subjects that I had some familiarity with and some which were completely unexpected, you know, from Buddhism to sort of Lovecraft and, uh, and you know, the, a whole, and the, and the Rosicrucian thing, of course. Um, there was a whole, it was, it was difficult. It, I, I couldn't predict what was going to be on the next chapter you know and then it's 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 it was it was fascinating how the sort of the the concept of the egregore was sort of underpinned the approach to all those subjects well when i wrote it i couldn't predict what was going to be on the next chapter either <laughs> i mean, I mean it, it, that's the beauty of it it, yeah. it was just a conversation and it's it's just meant to inform the reader and some people have uh, challenged some of the points made in there. And my response is, you know, accept it or rejected. It. It's up to you. I'm not here to defend it. Yeah. I mean, when people, people write to me probably weekly and monthly. I get emails or letters from people saying how the book changed their lives. And it has because they didn't have a word for the experience. Now we do in the last two or three weeks, the word has come into the popular vocabulary of mass formation psychosis. And that very aptly describes, although I wouldn't necessarily call every egregore a psychosis, um, but the process of its formation uh, is like that of a egregore. It's very similar. They, they really, for practical purposes, identical. And I'll let you know, other people you know, tease that apart all they want. But the reality is people who are practicing this stuff, whether for good or ill, for your best interest or not your best interest, aren't concerned about the finer points. It's just a matter of what works. Does this work? And uh, in some respects, it's like uh, what John Wanamaker said about advertising. You know, half of all my advertising dollars are wasted. I just wish I knew which half. <laughs> uh but that's that's you know kind of getting ahead of ourselves to some degree. Yeah, I mean, so to you specifically, what what does an egregore mean? You know, what what, what uh, how do you personally define an egregore? Well, I think um, you know Jacques Vallée gave a great example when he talked about uh, the UFO phenomena being a, a social control mechanism, and and that's really what an egregore is. It's a social control mechanism, and. We, it does that in, in two ways. One is there's the aspect of a collective unconscious in which people are part of the unconscious rules and aspects of a group, okay? And then there's the additional aspect, which may or may not be part of someone's view, and they're free to accept or reject it, is the more metaphysical view in which that is then further connected through the psychic dimensions to a variety of entities or sentient beings uh, that may or may not be human. So we have this notion of gods and angels and demigods and demons and uh, super beings like unknown superiors and all that kind of stuff, spiritual beings. So uh, where do they fit in? Uh, so classically, the relationship was like a funnel. Uh, there's this small point of the funnel. Yeah, I think the small point, you can reverse the image if you want, maybe it works both ways. And down here on terra firma, which is us, and then there's the big end of the funnel, which is uh, maybe your deity of choice. So today is Thursday. Uh, the, the god which rules Thursday is the planet, you know, Jupiter, Zeus. Any gods having to deal with Jupiter rule this day? Uh, the archangel Zatkiel rules this day. Uh, other angels are associated with it, such as Cassiel. Okay, so all of these things fall into the egregore, the collective archetypal qualities, but they're not, when we speak of archetypes, people like to think of them as symbols. And in the Western mind, when we say a symbol, we mean, uh, oh yeah, it's that. It's not real. Symbol means not real. Uh, a vague representation of something, but it's not the thing itself. 
in the metaphysical world, the symbol is the thing. The symbol conveys qualities and powers and aspects because it is those qualities and aspects embodied to some degree. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of fascinated when reading this, this, the concept of the egregore, how that related to archetypes because, of the, you know, you've got the, within the archetypal idea, you've got the, the actual and then you've got the symbolic, but then there's something beyond that in the Jungian, the classical Jungian understanding that there's, a, there's something beyond that. Um, which remains sort of on the other side of the veil, uh, so to speak. And um, how do they, is the, is the egregore the same idea as an archetype? Or is it, or is it we're in the same territory, aren't we, essentially? You're right, you are in the same territory, and that's where it gets messy, because an egregore is always collective. So you relate to something collective, but you may do it consciously, you may do it unconsciously, but really... When we're talking about egregores, we're talking about something like a family egregore, a political egregore, a religious egregore, an occult group egregore. Uh, even the social framework of your uh, school PTA or the, um, the council board for where you live. You know, all of these things have a kind of certain com leveling effect on people, a commonality of, of, of values often comes out. I see it on board of directors all the time. You know, really, especially if it's a nonprofit, you know, really smart, successful people suddenly become stupid, you know, um, when they're on a nonprofit board. It's interesting. So you see this uh, primarily, again, in political and religious structures because it's human idealism that they, they, they access and that's where the, the problems begin because they're they're offering solutions to human problems which if they can offer and they they solve those problems that's wonderful but often they can't and that's where a lot of the book focuses on really just taking good stock of what are the organizations you're involved with and why and primarily i focus on religious philosophical political esoteric because those are the ones that have the deepest emotional connection for people and say, so, you know, it's very simple. Are you getting what you were promised? And if not, why not? Can you get it? And probably if you can't, then how do you leave? I mean, one, one of the things struck me about it, maybe with the concept of the egregores, is it, is it possible not to be in an egregore of one shape or another or many probably in quite a few i mean anyone for example born in the western world where we're all uh western hemisphere we're, we're all um inheritors if we are conscious of it or not of or, you know the enlightenment and the renaissance and so on they that's in our cultural dna i mean that's just a very broad example but it also it does influence it does color and flavor our our perspectives, our beliefs and values, our, our language, our day-to-day -day sort of communication. So it's there. It's something we live, it's something within which we live and move and have our being, if we're conscious of it or not, like fish swimming through the sort of the ocean. And uh, and is it sustaining us or is it sort of hampering us or sort of taking us in directions where, which, as you say, is not in our best interest sometimes? Well, I mean, we see a lot of work going on today to destroy the Western connection to the Renaissance egregore, mm -hmm. or even to the Enlightenment one, and to, to manipulate that one in, in a different direction. Because egregores are living beings. They're, uh, they're self-aware in some regards. And they, they, they feed off the, the devotion and the commitment of their members. And that's that's how they receive their their life force or their sustenance. So you know, egregores of nations, of companies, of esoteric groups. You know, they they often can engage in a variety of forms of we'll call it psychic conflict or war in the heavens with one another. Mm. And it can just be as simple as a little bit of irritation, like sandpaper. You know, like maybe when you were in high school and you had that weird rivalry with some other school, you know, and on their sports team. And, and you weren't even on the sports team. You didn't really care. And, but somehow, you know, you knew that kids who went to the other school, you weren't supposed to talk to them, you know, <laughs> you know, that kind of weird kind of unconscious effect. Other times it's more, uh, more specific. Uh, so 
egregores are nearly impossible to not be in because mm -hmm. we are part of groups. What we can do is we can be very selective in the groups that we associate with. And the reason being is, you know, we will become like the five people we spend the most time with. Yeah. So when we look at the teachings of, you know, in classical Buddhism, it's uh, uh, the, the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, the teacher, the teachings and the community of the practitioners. Um, you know, we have to look at that, you know, like in, in Freemasonry, which I wrote a book on, which I think we'll be talking about in a month or so. Uh, you know, there's the uh, the master of the lodge. Uh, there is the uh, the book of the law, the volume of the sacred law. And then there's the household of the faithful, the brethren. And, you know, you have to be really careful who you let into a lodge. You know, it's like because once in, they're hard to get out. Yeah, it's yeah. like ideas in your head. You know, once in, they, they can be very difficult to get out. It's like that earworm of music we, we, we joke about so much. Um you know, I, I had a friend who worked at a place and he would kind of walk down the aisle you know, of where all the cubes were when he'd go from office to office and he'd kind of whistle that song from, uh, uh, what is it, from The Wizard of Oz, you know, if I only had a brain, you know. <laughs> and of course, you know, on the way back, there'd always be someone humming it, you know. <laughs> and, you know, that's the power of suggestion, you know, you do this on purpose. And... Um, that's where we really have to look at who do we hang out with. Exactly. We, I, mean, I was really struck by the um, you know, the comments about the Freemasonry and the fraternal organizations, uh, usually credible ones, have a sponsorship system. And it's a form. I mean, it's uh, there's lots of reasons for that. And one of the reasons is it's a form of sort of psychic hygiene in a way. It's a sort of... it's a it's um, There's a number of different reasons. And when that's ignored or overrun or it's not kept to that can have kind of uh, very destructive effects sure we call it guard ye well the western gate and uh you guard well that western gate who you let into your lodge regardless of, especially if it's a metaphysical lodge and you know there are ways around that like uh, you can have a, an open door policy in some point but then there has to be a way of weeding people out and uh, you know some ways are better than others but then again, within the organization, uh, you want to make sure that that weeding purpose is useful and practical, that it benefits you. It's not just a way of finding out, well, you're among the most devoted. You know, you're, you're the true believer. You're, you're really part of the, the in crowd. Um, that's where that process becomes pathological and is actually working against someone. You, know, you, need, you need the weeding process to be beneficial. Yeah, I mean, how the sponsorship system is um, applied depends upon the dominant culture, and the dominant culture depends upon the people who are responsible in the upper echelons for sort of, in, sort of guiding that and supporting that. I mean, there's other reasons. I mean, when you sponsor somebody as, as well, also you're you're supporting them. You're, you're literally, you know, you're you're nurturing them. You're guiding them to some extent. You're taking on a responsibility, a response responsibility, but it, you know. It relates to their responsibility as well, of course. Mm -hmm. Very definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, <clears throat> getting back to you know more, I guess specific egregores. Um, the first time I encountered the term was with the uh, German Fraternitas Attorney. I'm wondering if you're aware of that particular group, and obviously, the very. I mean, the the image you often uh, see associated with that group is a, a, a bust of an egregore someone you know one rendered into into um physical form <laughs> i was just wondering had you because i found that quite fascinating uh, that particular uh, egregore i was wondering if you had uh, you'd encountered that yes i mean i, I of course i read stefan flower's book uh, dr flower's book I, I read on you know i read it i found it very interesting i read it back in the 90s when it first came out and uh, I've spoken with one, two, I think two members of the organization over the years. And, um, you know, their emphasis on their egregore is where, of course, the, their notion of uh, a collective power that comes from that. Remember, egregore is a group. They're collective entities. And uh, that which I cannot do by myself, we can do it together. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, the mantra of it. It's like the symbol of, uh, you know, Italian fascism or, and, well, it's a symbol of other things as well, but that bundle of reeds, 
that bundle of arrows. You know, one reed breaks easily, but you bind them together and they're very strong. Mm. You know, they, so it's the same way with us. You know, many hands lighten the load. So it's it's not uh, new there, but it's it's specifically directed along psychic lines and towards a specific psychic manifestation. So for whatever reason, you know, the members of that organization have found a certain affinity towards their understanding and their expression of this uh, Saturnine current. And it comes through in, in very graphic form. And uh, again, the notion of what is the entity or entities at the other end of that funnel. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. And um, I, I can't say anything more than that. I mean, my, my feelings towards that organization in particular are somewhat neutral. I, uh, because I don't know enough about it. Mm. I only know what I read in the book. Yeah, same. Yeah. Uh, they're they're fairly obscure, aren't they? Um, in a way. Um, I, I, I was mo I was kind of interested though. That is it common in your um, you know research? Did you come across other examples of kind of egregores rendered into uh, some form? You know, where a group has acknowledged a a, a, a kind of you know a form of an egregore and. Generally speaking, they all are, whether they recognize it or not. I mean, even the form can be symbolic. So your logo is the expression of your egregore. So when you have the uh, Ronald McDonald and uh, golden arches of McDonald's chain, that's the expression of their corporate image, their corporate being, their corporate essence. Uh, the same thing with uh, political parties. You know, when you see the animal of the party, here would be you know donkey or the elephant of the Democrats or Republicans. You know those are or whatever other party it happens to be. That's that is an expression of the egregore in physical form, and those are important because it's easier in religious or esoteric uh, systems because you have so many expressions of Jesus, right? Human the human expression of Jesus throughout uh, Christianity. You have all these images and statues which uh, of, of different um, meditational deities, uh, yogic masters, uh, tantric adepts within Vajrayana Buddhism. You see the same in Taoism or, or in India, in Indian regular practices, not necessarily tantric practices, but regular Vedic practices as well. So this notion of creating something which I, as a human being, can begin to identify with is very important, the ability to identify. And that's where everything hinges on the I am statement. Now, you know, I remember my great uncle telling the story, you know, <laughs> he was a hypnotist as well. So, you know, Moses uh, saw the burning bush and the burning bush, he said, well, who are you? And and he hears back, I am that I am. And uh, he's thinking, I'm sure that really clear, you know, that cleared things up a lot. But the reality in our lives is when we say I am and then we fill in the blank. See, I am that I am, or it's really I am that which is becoming. But that, that is an expression of self-revelation, self-expression, self-knowledge, self-being. What people tend to do is they add something into that, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, I'm a Capricorn. <laughs> I <laughs> know uh, you're not. You're just born in that sign. You're not a Capricorn, <laughs> but you, you you think you are. That's good. Uh, or I'm this or I'm that. And that identification can be healthy or unhealthy, depending on what its effect is on a person. And it can also be healthy uh, or unhealthy for then a society as a whole too. And 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 there can be tremendous denial of reality in those affirmations of beingness, which may or may not be important on the individual level, but can be catastrophic on the social level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in the monocultural uh, uh, groups, uh, the, the the psychology of that must have a far more tighter grip, especially if they're very um, introverted and... Uh, you know, it, it, I mean, some groups, you know, particularly sort of cut themselves off from the rest of the world or, even, or the influence of the rest of the world and are inward looking, introverted in that sense, psychologically well, introverted. 
or they seek to expand their influence over it to absorb it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, okay. yeah. And, and there, there is, is the issue too. What is uh, when you uh, deny physical and material reality? There's that. There's an egregore at work. There's some kind of psychological function. There's a social control mechanism at work. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, one um, another point um, I was going to bring up, something else I'd learned about recently, um, was this idea of the tulpa and how the tulpa is uh, connected to the egregore. And the first time, weirdly, the first time I ever heard the phrase tulpa was on Twin Peaks, of all things, and the most recent series. The um, they're kind of represented as these kind of doubles, these sort of um, uh, I don't know what you call them really. They're kind of like a, a an evil version or a dark shadow version of one, you know, of a character within the story. And that sounds more like a doppelganger. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I just wonder if that was, a, you know, maybe they just used the word and didn't really grasp its meaning. But, um, but yeah, I found it fascinating in your book where you, you sort of went, you dove into the kind of the history a bit of um, of the of the tulpa. I was wondering if you could speak to the tulpa a little bit because I think. Yeah, you know, that's you know, and that's something some people often disagree with that. And you know, I have to say, you know, look, uh, Alexandra David Neal was there. You know, she was in Tibet. Okay, she was in Nepal. She was in Bhutan. She was in China during this period. And her recollections are written in a style that is typical of the traveler. Uh, that is, she cleans up the conversation so that it's readable to her reader. Uh, I'm sure that the discussion that she had. Uh, regarding the the, the tulpa uh, didn't flow exactly as easily as where it appears in her writing. And uh, I just find it interesting that, you know, for decades she was the one of the go-to places for reading and still is. Uh, and uh, other folks who've been at that time frame in the 20s and 30s and into the 40s who were, were in that area, um, we see a lot of folks now uh, trying to, to dismiss them. Uh, we see a lot of uh, powerful revisionism in all areas of uh, esotericism and trying to really get rid of anything uh, that is simply either unpleasant or politically incorrect or we simply disagree with. So with her, many people say, well, the, the notion of the toku, okay, is a energetic projection where the mind controls the expression of the body magical projection is kind of what it's wrapped around that whole idea and that is a willful incarnation okay where an individual of uh, skillful enough mental status is capable of directing their incarnation this is not as difficult as many would have you believe uh, but it, it's rare. It's not often done as often as maybe people need to. So this tolku system is not universally accepted within Tibet, even you know, and it creates a lot of problems. Uh, but with it was the notion that a high-ranking individual could reincarnate. Their incarnation would be recognized. We probably the most famous example of that is of the Dalai Lama. And that with that would come a variety of benefits. Those benefits would be um, the students, the wealth, the whole hierarchy, the whole inheritance, really, of what that person previously had. So there's a complex culture behind the notion of this magical projection. Now, this magical projection doesn't necessarily have to be because it's related to this idea of, again, magical projection of energy creation is the, the topa where you create a thing, a thought form, essentially. And we deal with this all the time in Western practices and beliefs. And the thought form uh, can solidify to the point where it is visible to others, as theory goes. And if you're not careful, it and this is where it gets uh, interesting, because then the whole question is, what is sentience? What is being? You know, it can appear to take on a life of its own. Yeah, and that that narrative, uh, I mean, that's very closely related to the idea, the um, the catabolistic idea, the golem, the uh, the um, Tamaldic idea of the golem and the of of forming a figure from clay, and uh, which in turn 
sort of relates to the the Genesis creation story of, of Adam, which means red clay, mm -hmm. the, you know, being created by you know the the, the divinity and so on. So there's, there's well, a, like you I can mean, trace, you can trace, and also as well, it sort of led into, funny enough, it led in more recent history to um, the figure of Frankenstein's monster, which is a sort of science, flesh and blood robot, and 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 the the current idea of robots and, as you say, artificial intelligence. So there's a kind of you can you can trace <laughs> the, the the science fiction idea of the robot right back to his. Right back to the 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 Old Testament uh, Jehovah. Well, this is you know where we get into territory that many people just you know they they don't want to accept because they can't conceptualize of it. And because they can't conceptualize of it, therefore it, it it can't happen. It's not happening. People don't do that kind of thing. I mean, she, you hear that all the time in different areas. And, you know, with the transhumanist movement, uh, particularly out of Silicon Valley, I mean, there's a huge crossover, and it has been since the 60s, between this notion of what is psychic development, what is psychic projection, what is technology, where do they interface and overlap, and is it possible to transfer consciousness into you know, some kind of mechanical electronic structure because of the electronic nature of the brain. Mm. So they're very concerned uh, about this. And why? Well, you know, probably so they can have some variation of immortality. Mm. You know, can we transfer your brain? Can we transfer your consciousness? That kind of thing. And while that may sound outlandish to us, uh, or to your listeners, it doesn't mean it is to them. And that's the problem people get into. They, they keep judging things by their own standards, you know, their own narrow limitations. And, um, you know, the world doesn't work that way. Yeah, there's yeah, a, yeah, it's a it, tendency it, to surprise us from time to time, doesn't it? Well, it's scary to think that the people that are your would-be rulers, uh, you know, overlords are are not thinking like you. I mean, you want to, okay, you know, you think they're corrupt or, and you know, what have you. But to think that, and not all of them, but just enough of them may be thinking along those lines. It's too frightening. Because then what does that mean for the rest of us? Well, if they get robot bodies, what about the rest of us? Well, you're not in that equation. <laughs> you see, and... And to think that, well, no, they wouldn't do that here. And I don't want to get off topic, but this is an egregore in itself, the egregore of denial. Well, what, you, you, you think that 80, what is it, 80 million people were killed by communism and that was a fluke? Hmm. You know, 15 million in the camps and, oh, that was just a fluke? Hmm. You know, this is, this is where the existen everything has its problem in the existential crisis of meaning and value and responsibility and, and what it means to be an individual. And, and those crises, that existential crisis is what, you know, people answer through philosophical, religious and political and, and occult practices and movements. And that's why those egregors are so powerful because they, they offer a solution to that, that crisis of meaning. Going back to Tulpas very quickly, um, one of the sections of the book that really struck me and that I think it kind of became a bit of a, a theme, which is where there are kind of tensions between groups and egregores and um I, i'm gonna i'm struggling to say the name of the uh is it jorge shogden dorje shogden there we go <laughs> apologize that sounded, that sounded a bit like a lovecraftian monster <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh you really you never know at times i just <laughs> <laughs> I was just wondering if you could talk to that kind of uh, part of the book because I, I found that quite fascinating. This idea of a, a sort of runaway um, entity, I guess. Well, that's a wonderful story because so many people get offended by it. Um, again, because they, people want to believe the stories around these entities that they have devotional practices for. Uh, they often, you know, some of the most narrow-minded people I've met are, are Western converts to Tibetan Buddhism. Um, and with that framework, uh, you know, because, you know, when you've traded one religion for another, you know, you're all in. You're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. And that's one of the problems of conversion. You know? 
Um, so with that said, the notion of the egregore, or excuse me, of the, the tolpa uh, is that it is a thought form or creation. Okay. The notion of Dorje Shugden is that it is a protector deity. And there's a whole series of stories around how he came to be a protector deity. A protector of what? Well, therein lies the problem. Within that framework, it's a protector deity within the framework of primarily, not just, well, within the Galukpa sect of Tibetan Buddhism. And of course, what many Westerns don't want to understand is that there is a a really difficult history in Tibet of sectarian, some fairly violent sectarian conflict. And even that even lasted into the 30s. And, uh, you know, some people within the Galukpa were okay with a Chinese, they, thinking they'd go home, you know, a Chinese invasion of Tibet, as long as they kind of took care of the problem of the Nyingma and the Bon for them. You know, it's not all, you know, sweetness and light and, and bodhicitta. So, you know, that's part of a, you know, the, the narrative too. That's part of a, uh, an egregore's narrative, you know, don't, don't look behind the curtain. And, you know, and I have tremendous respect for, uh, you know, Vajrayana, but I'm not going to pretend, you know, for convenience where, where they're not making stuff up whole cloth or, or conveniently ignoring difficult facts. So, Torje Shugden is the protector of the Galukpa sect. Well, that meant the protector against the other sects as well, and really the protector against anything else, you know, anything else other than it, because that's what protectors do. And um, the question arose and the Dalai Lama said, you know, he practiced Dorje Shugden in his youth and that he eventually abandoned it for various reasons. And there are certain groups in the United States and Europe and elsewhere that still continue uh, this practice. And it's just uh, when you deal with that type of force or entity, uh, strange things occur. And that's why he, he advocated giving it up, that it was not in the best interest of um, Buddhists, Tibetan Buddhists, to, to practice uh, Dorje Shugden. I think he said uh, he had a series of dreams or something. Uh, well, that's what he says, anyways. I don't know if I don't know if they were I don't know if they were convenient dreams, I don't know, politically well, convenient dreams. Or they were. I honestly don't know. I mean, it's not. Right. I can't possibly judge. But no, but we we listen to it and we take it under consideration for its time. You know. And uh, you would think that someone whose country's been invaded and he, they've been kicked out would kind of want all the protection and force they can muster. And uh, uh, that, you know, this is basically saying, no, don't do it. It's not in our best interest to appease these entities because they get something in return. And uh, they, the practices of them can be very difficult. That you, you, It's very similar to various packs of goetic magic. Uh, you, there's agreements that are made, and those agreements have to be upheld on your end, or there's consequences. Which is very different from what many people think of as, you know, the typical notion. So, you rarely hear that uh, notion of protector mentioned in in outer tantras. It's always in the, I, to my understanding, I think it's mostly in the inner tantras. You know, because it's because it's tricky. It's tricky stuff. So these forces that are con that come together and are and feed off the devotions of their practitioners their followers in exchange for certain perceived or actual benefits is the whole nature uh, and the embodiment of that practice and and any in any egregore for that matter yeah, yeah i mean it was certainly unfamiliar to, to me and one what you know it's, it's it's completely new territory to me and so well, I think it's interesting because uh, this one of the stories goes around uh, Dorje Shugden being an executed uh, prisoner. Um, and, of course, you see in a lot of practices the need for an executed criminal for the formation of an egregore. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. One big one comes to mind. Can, can you think of it? Well, yeah, like a certain Palestinian chap somewhere in that part of the world. Uh, yes. Yeah, so... You know, when we look at, you know, Christianity, uh, you know, we have the, the execution of, of three criminals. 
you know, and, and then of course the execution of the followers, which in theory, you know, that force, that emotional offering, particularly the violence and death, then continues to feed the, uh, the egregore for better or worse. Yeah. Also you've got the notion once uh, practice in some parts of the world of a foundation sacrifice some you know you know where build a bridge or a new bridge or building as a you know a living sacrifice placing its foundations i mean there's a theory i don't know how what you think about this uh, but there's a theory that the the, um, the third degree in freemasonry had some kind of flavor of that to it but you know and the, uh, um, and there's also like a animal sort of sacrifices or, or animals, you know, like um, cats found in wars and, you know, uh, that kind of thing. That, that's, uh, that's sort of, sort of we're, we're sort of going in that kind of similar territory again, aren't we? We're sort of... Sure. And, you know, of course, you see within Vajrayana Buddhism, just to clarify for the listener, uh, they were quite horrified by a lot of the actual sacrifices and therefore they moved to symbolic sacrifice. We see that notion in Christianity as well, where the mass becomes a symbolic sacrifice. Yeah. You know, of, uh, and of course, there's other various notions around it. But the fact is, you're not, uh, you're you're not killing someone each time you you hold the mass. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> even though it says, "Take this as my body and blood." Uh, so it's uh, this notion of symbolic representation as a very vital and important medium or conduit, not as a yes, no, yeah, that's it, but it's not, you know, it's a symbol, it doesn't really mean anything. No, the symbol is a very vital and powerful force and presence. I was kind of interested, obviously you have your own take on on egregores. Um, Do you discourage people attempting to create their own egregores or... um... Do you think, uh, you know, do, uh, do you think that's not a good practice, as it were, or uh, is this uh, is it something you're against? Everyone's going to make up their own mind. They have to assess their own capacity. You know, if I tell you not to do it, and just people are going to run out and going to try it, but they don't. You know, do they know what they're doing? If they know what they're doing, they don't need my advice. I think the issue is first and foremost take an assessment of the groups you're in. And decide what groups are healthy for you and helpful for you and then make decisions. If you've, you may find that your life straightens out by just, you know, get or getting better distance from a lot of the groups that you're in, creating healthier relationships with the people and the ideals. Again, this all focuses around an unhealthy attachment to ideals when it's out, when it's negative. You know, the group is going to give my life meaning. Well, no, it can give it some meaning, but it can't give it meaning. You know, you, you still have to find value and meaning in your own life in your own way. And we see that often in esotericism. People move to spirituality because uh, essentially they, they've given up on, on achieving other goals in life. Mm-hmm. Now, a friend of mine used to joke that almost all the ministers she knew were failed performers. And, and I think that's true in many ways. I see so many people in esotericism, would really, they, they just want to be rock stars. And, and also as well, in, in the book you write quite a bit about Kenneth Grant and the um, uh, those particular sort of the Typhonian sort of uh, currents and things and and how they linking and how they draw upon they draw upon uh, Lovecraft and Robert E Howard and their work. I was just well, that's just an amazing thing because um, it, it 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 thins the the line between fantasy and reality at that point you know right here in terra firma we don't have a lot of freedom of action you know in our thoughts we do but not in our action remember freedom of action because um fire burns uh water makes wet wind blows and gravity is your friend as long as you're not falling more than uh maybe six inches after that, it starts to hurt. So the world has very reliable, the physical world has very reliable cause and effect. Or all of our material sciences is based around it. 
what allows us to have the wonderful technology and quality of life that we have. That's what allows us to be speaking this way right now at this time. We don't even think about it. It's so predictable. But in the mental domain, in the imaginary domain, in the psychic domain, we slowly begin to acquire more freedom of action. And in theory, and this is where esotericism and psychic phenomena and psychic research comes in, in theory, increased freedom of action in the psychic domain will result in an increased freedom of action even in the material domain. Otherwise, well, what are, you know, magical rituals and psychic research is worthless. You know, alchemy is just a giant experiment in psychokinesis when you get right down to it. So as we undertake these paths and practices, in theory, as we become more self-aware and decluttered internally, uh, that we will acquire more self-knowledge and with that will confer automatically virtue. And virtue isn't just some notion of uh, a pleasant uh, moralizing, but it is a true virility or power. You know, in the classical uh, teachings of theurgy, you know, virtues and vices are very important in, in Tibetan Buddhism and all the yogas and the virtues and vices are very important. The problem arises is that as one gets further and further away from the herd of people, the mass, and on, on their path of individuation and individual awakening and awareness, uh, one can begin to understand the outcomes of actions far in advance, and that's what allows for prophecy or prediction. But that also means that individuals can act in a manner that goes completely against the, the group norms, and it's not understood. So there you have that crazy yogi phenomena. So I'm trying to show how all this interacts. Okay. And within that framework, then the individual, uh, you know, if they if they seek to create an egregore, you know, the whole burden of that creation now is on them. You know, it's not it's not a freebie. Let me just be very clear on that. You you can do it if you like, but there's costs uh, accounted with everything we do. Yeah, actions have consequences, kind of mm -hmm. thing. Um, so before, you know, uh, we're nearing the end of our interview, I, I just kind of want to speak to you about a, a large portion of your book is um, about how to sort of um, rid yourself or, you know, defend yourself against uh, egregores. And I was wondering if we could talk to that. Oh, sure. That's, and that's a great one because... You know, in the book, we focus a lot on the problems, and I need to be very clear on that. There's a lot of good egregores out there. You know, if you're a drug addict or an alcoholic and you find yourself in the right AA meeting, I mean, that can be what pulls you out of the uh, off the brink of, of the precipice of death and destruction. You know, there are many people who, you know, they found Jesus, and that saved them from a terrible life, terrible problems from the direction they were going in. Or they found whatever, fill in the blank. So there are healthy egregores. You just want to make sure the one you're in is good for you, that it's fulfilling the promises. Now, if it's not, one of the ways to check how much influence it has on your life is kind of look around. Look around your apartment, look around your room, look around your house, and say, how much stuff here is kind of a representation of that egregore? And it can be anything. I mean, you, you could just be obsessed with, you know, some movie stars or some rock band or something. And it's just your whole focus. It's your whole thing in life. You know, well, that's not good. You know, you need a life of your own. So what you do is you take down all the pictures, take down all the posters, take down all the banners, take down all the books, and put everything associated with this thing you love so much, this group, uh, this ideal. If it's an ideal, it could be a political ideal or a social ideal. And put them in boxes in your closet and don't look at it. And notice how much free space you have. And notice how much free space you have in your mind, too. How that your mind is not automatically directed just through the uh, stimulus response effect of those images or those sounds or those ideas around you. And just see how much freedom you have. And then if you like, you could slowly reintegrate some of those ideas back into your life or you can decide if you want to move in a different direction. Now, if it's really terrible, you may have to burn those things. You may have to destroy them to get rid of the link. But I think for many people, it's not that severe. They just put it in the closet for a month, maybe more, maybe a month and a half, 
give it a good stretch. And then you get to notice, wow, I, I really didn't miss that. Wow, you know, I've really got more time. I'm, I'm not spending that much time on social media defending things that really don't concern me or I can't have any effect on. You know, I'm not spending as much time watching those shows that I was so wrapped into as an extension of my fantasy life or my fantasy ideas. Now you have time to do other things and be truly creative in your own life, whether it's exercise, lose weight, learn how to knit wool caps or, you know, do something else. You, you, you now have time. And with that, you have the potentiality to create and recreate yourself in a meaningful way yeah. that I mean, makes you happy. I mean, because these psychological sort of landscapes are, are they're not moral or immoral, they're amoral, they, or they reflect the values and beliefs that we, we um, approach them with. And it's, in most cases, like you seem to be suggesting, it's, it's a case of uh, n negotiating the landscape. Right. Very much so. I mean, of course, there are some that are just terrible, uh, and, and we don't need to focus on those. You, you kind of recognize them, and they're in the book. And there's some that are really good, but only for a time being, and then you have to leave. You have to learn to go stand on your own. So uh, that's really what the book is about. The book is about, it's really a coming-of-age story, <laughs> mm -hmm. helping people to come of age and you know stand on their own, to, to negotiate the psychic, their own inner psychic landscape in a healthy and productive way. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up uh, as well before you went is um, the forward to your book is written by James Wasserman, who we, who passed you know recently. And I was wondering if you could, because we didn't really cover James Wasserman's passing, and uh, I assume you were familiar with him or you know friends of him in some form. If he wrote the forward to your book, I was just wondering if you could speak to uh, to Mr. Wasserman a, a bit, and uh, you know uh, maybe you know what was your relationship with him. Oh, James and I were simply friends. He was a wonderfully controversial figure, uh, and we enjoyed that. Uh, and um, I believe it was around 2007. I'd have to check the year. Uh, I invited him, because I, I didn't know him. I invited him to come to uh, northeastern Pennsylvania, to Wilkesboro, Pennsylvania, to speak at the uh, Masonic Reading Society. And he was in New York at the time, and uh, we arranged for him to come out and we hosted the event at a uh, uh, very um, impressive venue, uh, private business club in downtown Westmoreland Club. Uh, it's just a wonderful interior, wonderful place. And he was suitably impressed. And uh, at one point, uh, I said, uh, you know, James, I, I, I have to uh, go pick up my, my son from school. And uh, we were in the car and we were talking. But before that, I, I also had him on the phone with some other people that he knew in common and had spoken with in probably decades. One of them was uh, Joseph Leshevsky, who, who he knew from back in the day, you know, probably the 70s and 80s when they were uh, crossing paths with Israel Regardi and all of that. And um, he asked me, you know, he said, uh, are, you, are you, you know, you, you said it, but are you a member of the OTO? Because, of course, he has... Uh, or had a, a fairly significant role in that organization. And I told him I wasn't. And he asked me, uh, why not? And I said, well, because of the members. <laughs> and, and he kind of laughed. And, uh, you know, when we took him to this place to give a presentation, you know, I mean, he, he commented on how very different this was from the usual venues that he was often invited to. And uh, we hit it off because... Uh, we were willing to ask hard questions. You know, he was a former hippie and I was a former social worker. And, uh, you know, when you notice the collapse of that idealism, when idealism collapses and it goes toxic, it goes very toxic and it goes really bad. And, um, that's, you know, one of the things I write about in other areas, when spiritual idealism goes toxic, it goes political. Okay, that's how it moves downward. And then it seeks to force its ideals uh, through force, through coercion. And of course, James, within five years or eight years of that, I know within at least 10, was uh, you know, having a lot of problems within the OTO because of his outspoken views. And uh, you know, a lot of the things he said, many people didn't like, but really they, they, they've been proven true. 
you know, I've had a lot of experience in the media, uh, quite a bit. And um, again, people are going to believe what they want to, regardless of, of the facts. That's the problem. It's when things are idealistically or ideally driven, you will consistently disregard physical reality right up until the end. And the end can mean a bullet behind, uh, behind your ear. So, you know, he moved from being a, he himself had moved from being this, you know, very radical leftist hippie in the 60s and 70s with all that that implies in terms of uh, uh, various uh, substance abuse and, and his having to overcome his own addictions uh, to becoming more uh, pretty much a libertarian. I think that's how he identified himself as libertarian. And one of the things that struck me in the foreword is uh, he talks about how it, that that struggle, you know, sort of tore him apart. So, you know, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't something done nightly. Yeah. I mean, you know, he, I guess it was, it was a very difficult time for him. I mean, I was a, a former uh, addictions counselor and I've, I've worked in a variety of settings in, in that area. So I've got a, a kind of a wide and, and very background and experience with different people and groups. And, uh, you know, we just, we hit it off and I, I, he wanted to build, more infrastructure for his organization. And again, I'm not a member of it. I never have been and I never will be. Uh, I've gotten along well with a few people. James is one of them. Uh, Juan Duquette was another and uh, a few other folks who I like. Uh, but that said, what my support for him was primarily that he wanted to build something meaningful, something that would last. Uh, and, you know, that's a discussion for another day. Uh, but I, mean, I think you can see within that framework of that organization, within the last five years, six years, it, it's really been torn apart by a, a political litmus test, which he clearly failed. And that, you know, and that litmus test is, is again, that egregore now saying, this is what it means to be. If you're going to be a good person, this is what you need to think and believe and do. So within that framework, you see a lot of moralizing, which coming out of the OTO is an irony, uh, a high irony given uh, the activities of its members back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Yeah, I mean, I, I had the good fortune of meeting Mr. Westman on one occasion. It was a very memorable occasion. He was a, a scholar and a gentleman. so I, Always I was, but he wouldn't take crap from anybody. Uh, I think that's the you know what maybe offended folks. But with me, we... We were always very blunt and very funny, and uh, uh, and I, I enjoyed his company and support, and uh, I liked him a great deal, and I miss him a great deal. Mm. Uh, that's a that's a good a good place to end the interview. Uh, thanks so much. And um, if people want to sort of find you online, um, where 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 should they look? Well, if they just Google my name, a lot of things will come up. But I would say go to the Institute for Hermetic Studies, Google that, and you'll get our webpage, but also. Go to Teachable, teachable.com, and Institute for Hermetic Studies at teachable.com. That's the best place. That's where our coursework is. Mm. And just sign up for Unfolding the Rose. It's six hours of coursework. Uh, it's at no cost to you, and uh, you'll get a taste of uh, what we have to offer. And, and I think you'll enjoy it. Do you have any new uh, books on the horizon? Or Oh, we do. Uh, in fact, uh, coming out next year, I think it's Anathema Press. I hope so. I didn't mention the wrong publisher. Uh, is going to be doing a gourmet edition of um, a two-volume set called Order Out of Chaos, which is uh, a series of, uh, I got to tell you, they're just spectacular, really some spectacular essays that I wrote as, as part of a fundraising project for the Institute. And, you know, you say that because sometimes you just get lucky. I think creative people out there understand this. You know, sometimes, like, like with Egregores, I just sat down and it happened. I got lucky and you cross your fingers. And you say, thank you very much. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, most of these essays are, are kind of like that. It was like, wow, that was good. I'm not going <laughs> to, it's time to stop. <laughs> it's time to stop. It's good. Don't overcook it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. Anyway, it was great to have you on and, uh, you will know, we'll, we'll hopefully be speaking to you soon on your more recent book, uh, the, the path of Freemasonry. Thank you very much. I look forward to it. And we're back. That was a really interesting interview. Uh, what did you think? 
Yeah, so, you know, he had a very clear idea of uh, the content he wanted to bring to it. And uh, that's, like I say, reflected also in the, in, in the book itself. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, the book's very comprehensive, I'd say, isn't it? And and I think, you know, I, I, I get the impression we could probably have uh, kept recording for several hours and, you know, yeah, got a very vast uh, well of knowledge from uh, Mr. Stavish. Yeah, and he, he has a sort of like uh, I think you were saying he has a, he has a kind of sort of um, very reflective sort of style of um, the discussion guiding the discussion there. So. Mm. Yeah, it was good. It was good. Okay, so um, yes, just a reminder again, we are running a competition until the end of January 2022. In case you're listening to this, and you know, God knows how many years later, uh, it's too late. It's gone. Um, but yeah, uh, till the end of January 2022. If you go to uk you have to follow us on Instagram, follow the instructions on the post at sittingnow.co.uk for episode 60, the Tobias Churton episode. Um, you'll see all the details there. Um, but yeah, we'd, uh, we're so far, we've got one person that's... Uh, <laughs> that's uh, I think it's because we hid the competition at the end of the episode. So I'm going to make a real point of hammering it home on this one because, uh, you know, it's a good book and you know, one of you guys should, uh, should, should claim it. Um, and we'll select at random. I, there's some, I found some software where you can randomly select um, people's names from a, a list. So uh, anyway, um, yes, follow us on Instagram, uh, sitting now. Basically, all, on social media, we're sitting now, one word, S-I-T-T-I-N-G-N-O-W. And we will be back next week with returning guest Peter Gray and Alcastisk Dimesh. Dimesh.